of the things the book of Hebrews does. It not only enhances the study of Christ, our Christology, but it really enhances our ecclesiology. It gives us a proper understanding. A low view of Jesus will have devastating effects on our Christian growth. But I believe in the same way. A low view of the need of the church of Jesus Christ will have devastating effects on our Christian life. You see, we've been seeing this all the way through. Remember back in chapter 3 and verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then look what he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He, he says this in a way, not just of a personal exhortation. I could read Hebrews 3 and say, okay, the takeaway is I need to guard against an unbelieving heart. And that would be true. But he says, exhort one another every day. He puts this back in the context of the body. And he says, look, within your Christian experience, you have to look out for each other. You have to regard the brother. You have to regard your sister. You have to regard the body. You see, the one thing that happens is when we forget that, and I've been guilty of it, it takes one to know one. But when we forget that, what happens is if we get into an individual mindset of the Christian life, we focus on our devotional life. We focus on our prayer life. We focus on our own Christian journey. But what we fail to see is that if we neglect the body, we are robbing them of intended blessings that God has intended for us to participate in. See, Hebrews 3 points it out. Hebrews 4 points it out. Let us then, I love this. He doesn't just say, let you, you know, you need to draw with confidence to the throne of grace. He says, let us. The author of Hebrews includes himself within this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And while we're so thankful that that applies to us as individuals, we don't need a Roman Catholic priest. We don't need some intermediary. We can go to the Lord wherever we are at any time. He wants us to see that while that precious promise applies to us as individuals, this is even in the context of a corporate group. In Hebrews chapter 6, after he goes through the warning passage, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And then he goes on in verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And then he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And I want you to think about this. We desire each one of you. Again, the danger so many times is that if we fall prey to an individual-only Christian life, it's about our growth, it's about our progress, it's about our life, but what happens in the body of Christ is the Holy Spirit has given us a desire to see those around us mature. All of a sudden, you're worried about me. 
all of a sudden I'm thinking about your sanctification. I'm thinking about your growth. I'm thinking about your hurts. I'm thinking about your weariness. I'm thinking about your struggles. I'm thinking about you because now we begin to see that, that we're in this together. And the author is pointing this out. Go over to chapter 10. In chapter 10, notice this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And you know, this is the passage where he says, and I'm going to jump through it and go down a little bit. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And notice this, he turns right around and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Think about it. I love this. He's saying, look, let us think, how can we encourage one another in the midst of suffering, hardship, and adversity. Because I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, and we're gonna see it in chapter 12 today. When you go through suffering, hardship, and adversity, you're tempted to start thinking weird in your, in your mind. You're tempted to begin to doubt the goodness of God. You're tempted, now some of you may be like, I've never been tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Praise God for that. But I tell you, a lot of people that I've talked to in the midst of suffering, it's like everything they know, they begin to wonder about. And what do we need? We need the body of Christ. And then he says what? He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But what? We need to be together for what? To encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing Near. I read all those passages to you today. And the very last one I want to mention, Hebrews 10, 35, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And, and so we see this, 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 this appeal for endurance, this appeal to keep running. The first imperative that we're really going to look at this morning Three imperatives we're going to focus on. I think I told you four. Three. There's a couple in, in a, a couple of these. There's two involved. So three points. There'll be more than three verbs, but hopefully that'll make sense to you. Number one, lift and make straight. Lift and make straight. Look at what he does in verse 12. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Uh, th this is fascinating. Have, have, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And, and you know, you've heard this, and, and, and hopefully it'll be ingrained in your memory long after I'm out of here in this world. You'll remember that we say, when you see a therefore, you've got to know what it's there for. And the therefore here is, is really based on his whole section of how he taught him that, hey, God is disciplining you because he loves you. If you weren't being disciplined, if you weren't experiencing trials, hardship, and adversity, then you would be an illegitimate son. But God is disciplining you because he's got purposes for you, because he is making you holy 
He is growing you. And so he, he calls them back. You remember in that whole section right before that, around verse 11, 10, he talks about consider Jesus, consider Jesus even um, before verse 10, actually. But when we look at this, what is he doing? He's saying, look, in light of what we know is true, when we go through adversity, when we're tempted to question the discipline of God, because of all these things being true, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I love these, uh, these, these, these type of illustrations that we can relate to when it comes to physical activity. So many of y'all played uh, football or baseball or you ran. The, I, I was tall, so I had to play basketball. And uh, they sort of have to when you're tall. And uh, I played basketball, and I can remember the, the my mind went to uh, I was you know I, I remember we, one year we were playing a we were we played Covenant College in Chattanooga, and they were a big rival, and they had a really good player. He was a lot better than me, and uh, and I and my job really was to try to guard him and just make it difficult for him. And and so basically, I was so tired trying to guard this guy that I was worn out on offense. I mean, tired. I mean, have you ever been so tired in athletic stuff where you literally don't know how you're even going to get through the next play? And, and we always had this rule that if you come out on your own, then the coach has to put you back in when you're not tired anymore, but we didn't believe him. So we just kept playing. And uh, we didn't think he was going to put us back in if we said that we wanted to go back in. That, that other guy may be playing better. And so we wanted to stay in the game. And, and you get out there, and you know, there, the guy gets fouled, and it goes to the foul line, and immediately your hands go where? To your knees. And you're just gasping, and you're tired, and you are just, you're, you're barely making it. And you're just trying as hard as you can to deny that guy, and you got to like, I mean, you, you, every time I'm trying to keep him from catching the ball, because he was great. And I had to do everything I could to just try to keep him from touching the ball. And it was wearing me out because he was moving all over the court. In the Christian life, you, you think about this. Think about running. And, and even if you're not a runner, if you've ever ran a 5K or if you've ever tried to run around the block after Thanksgiving meal. And, and, you know, and that's depressing, isn't it? You run like 30 yards and you're like, I'll never make it. Uh, but you're so tired. Now, I want you to think about this in a spiritual concept, all right? I want you to think about being so weary and so overwhelmed that you've got drooping hands and you've got weak knees. Drooping hands, you can't even, the, the word drooping, it, it's the idea of, um, I mean, they, they can't, they, they, they're, they're leaned over, they can't even lift their hands, they're, they're feeble in their knees, and he calls them to action. He calls them to response. I wonder today if your spiritual life right now feels like you are dealing with drooping hands and weak knees. And you may be there. I've been there before where I just felt overwhelmed. Felt overwhelmed and I, you wouldn't have known probably. I may have told somebody. I, there's people I'll go to. But sometimes you can see me and not have a clue what's going on in my heart and in my life spiritually, but I'm overwhelmed. And yet, what is he doing? He's saying, in light of what I've revealed to you, go back, go back with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and here in this last section in verse, in, in verse 5. 
And remember when he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You're not, you're not the, uh, the neighbor's kids. You're not just these random kids running down the street. You are sons and daughters of the king. And he loves you and he cares for you. And, and you know, like in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He goes on down. He talks about how earthly fathers disciplined us. But then he says, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And then he says in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now I want you to think about it. Isn't it amazing? And if you're a Christian, you can relate to this experience. If you're not, this is foreign to you. But if you're a believer, you can relate how the word of God gives you life and gives you this inability to keep going. And here they are. They're tempted to quit. They're tempted to go back to Judaism. They're looking at the suffering persecution in their life, and they're looking at it, and they're disillusioned. They don't understand what's going on. If I'm a child of God, why is it so hard in my life? If I'm a child of God, why are we getting persecuted? And now he gives them the reality that they are precious to the king. They are his children. He says, in light of this truth. Now think about this. You know, often when you see a therefore, you have that previous context. But think about the, the letter to Hebrews. I mean, you could throw in everything. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is Lord. There's none greater than Jesus. And he goes all the way through. He's our high priest. He's sinless. He's sympathetic. He's compassionate towards you. And all of this is building. And he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Today, if you're feeling like you're wanting to quit, if you feel like you can't make it anymore, because of the grace of the gospel that is yours in Jesus Christ, believer, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Keep going, friend. Don't quit. You look at this and he goes on, and I don't know if you can just see the, the imagery here. He goes and strengthen, make firm the, the look at listen, to Isaiah 35. This is where this comes from. Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. I love this because it's a reminder of what is true. It's a reminder of, of what is coming. You, you see, suffering precedes glory. That's the message of 1 Peter. Suffering precedes glory. It's like when, when we go through trial and when we go through suffering, we have to remember what's coming. It's like when we, when we plant something in the ground, you, you don't just plant it, put seed in the ground and sit back and go, all right, I'm going to run inside and pop back out here in three minutes and see what I've got. No, it takes time. It takes time. It takes time. And what is he calling them to? And just as the prophet is calling them here in, in this verse and in this passage 
to see the reality that God will come, that, that you can have hope, you can put aside your anxiety, you can put aside your weakness, you can walk in the strength that God provides. I love this because it's one thing if I try to motivate you. It's another thing if you rely on the promises that are yours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That, that's the kind of truth you can hang on to. That's the kind of truth that goes with you. That's the reminder that when you're weak, God gives strength to what he commands. God enables what he commands. Wherever you are and whatever you're going through, when you look at the commands that are in the scripture, in Jesus Christ, as a child of God, his word gives life, his spirit gives power. You have ability because of the grace that is yours in Jesus. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Drooping, weak knees. I was looking at, at one comment here, and, and, and it's the idea of, of you know, keep going. Um, he says, the, the writer here is um, that they're going to show in their good example. They're going to model this for the other believers. He knows that some members desperately need to be healed for some of these vital limbs in the local church have been put out of joint. But if healing is to come, it is not simply the responsibility of the leaders, tireless pastors though they are, but of every single member. So let's look at this idea here. Because in the New American Standard, look at how this is listed. It says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And I like how Stephen Cole puts it. He says, you know, basically, the wording of this exhortation, he says, allows it to be applied both individually and corporately. So it may be that you need to be strengthened, but it may mean that you are to strengthen the ones around you that are weak. This gets exciting to look at. He says, make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths for your feet. The idea of making a straight path is literally the idea of the path here is used of um, it, it, it's used of a wheel track. It's used of a way. It's used of a path. It, it's used literally of the idea that he says one commentator and make straight paths for your feet refers to staying in your own lane in the race. The paths refers to the tracks left by the wheels of a cart or chariot, which later travelers follow. He goes on, when we run, we leave a track behind us, which will either lead or mislead others. We should take great care that the tracks we leave are straight. The only way we leave a straight track is to live right and run a straight course. I tell you, people follow us, and he puts this in a way of saying, you know, it's not just that you are seeking to run the race individually, but you are looking out for those around you that are weak. 
And then one of the ways that you can inspire others in the body of Christ to keep running and to run in the right direction is by God's grace, you blaze a trail that literally they can follow. Have you ever been in charge of leading a group of drivers? I don't like that. I don't like it at all. I, I remember like on U trips before, you know, back when we didn't really even use cell phones. And well, we use cell phones, but they would be following me and I would get confused and I'd have seven cars behind me, eight cars. And I have to get, I have to do a U-turn and they're looking at me like, what are you doing? And you turn and you go off the road and everybody's turning and they're all looking at you frustrated and they're all looking, or you're on the, have you ever been driving and you're leading a whole group and you're on the wrong interstate? That's awful. <laughs> and uh, you're like, oh no. And then, then they're like, what, why are you getting off the exit? Why are you going back the other way? And it's just like you, you are leaving them like this all over the place. I mean, I could give you so many stories of that happening in my life. And sometimes isn't that the way it is, spiritually speaking? If people are looking at us in the body of Christ, unfortunately, as we seek after our own flesh, as we are rather than uniters, dividers within the body of Christ, we are literally like the worst way that they could follow. And yet one of the ways for spiritual health within the local church and one of the ways that we can rally those that are hurting and those that are weary and those that are tempted to lose heart, one of the ways we can compel them to look to Jesus is as we look to Jesus. I love it because when Paul called people to follow his example, he wasn't saying he was some Superman. Look at me. I've heard people say that almost like I felt like the way that they described it was not even the understanding of the text. Paul could say, follow me, because he was looking to Jesus. He was looking to Jesus. And so what is he doing here? He's saying, keep going. Look after those that are lame. It's a sense that they're maimed spiritually, and, and, and they, they need to be healed in Proverbs chapter 4, 25, it says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Keep following. The next one, strive for peace and holiness. Look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know, it's like this. We, we need to have a view of the body of Christ that we are looking out for everyone. We're looking for who's straggling in the back. You know, on the, the youth camp last summer when I got us on the wrong trail and uh, we went up one of the most strenuous hikes there was at the entire camp. I thought we were on the easiest one. Kids were dropping like flies. And uh, people were just, it, it, was, it was pandemonium for a while. And, um, but, but we needed to be watching for the kids that were in the very back, you know, like you, you go up that trail and, and you need to know, uh, oh, Johnny's back there about two miles back, you know, do we got a counselor back there with Johnny? You know, get somebody back there with Johnny, get him water, get him meds, get him whatever he needs. Make sure he's okay. We got to have that mentality. It's sort of like an injury, you know, like you used to, like if you're watching an SEC game pretty much everybody knew what was going on with what injury somebody had because they get hurt on the field, they take them off on the sideline, and they're on a table. 
And everybody can tell what the trainer's doing. Is he working on his knee? Is he working on his ankle? Well, what do they do now? They got those little pop-up portable tents, right? And they go into the tent and everybody's wondering, what are they looking at? What are they doing? But I love it. It's sort of a good picture. It's like we're going to build a tent around whoever's hurting because we don't want anybody to marginalize this person. We want to care for them. We want to give them privacy. We want to treat them with dignity. We want to love them. We want to keep them moving. And now he's like, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In the body of Christ, when we are going through adversity, hardship, and difficulty, it is going to be absolutely imperative that we remember to keep peaceful relationships. Have you ever in your own families noticed that when you're going through circumstances and trials, sometimes you can get at odds with each other? When things are hard, you can have a tendency to just blow it. I tell you, when there's persecution and when there's pressure, a lot of times that's when we see an opportunity for the devil, an opportunity for the flesh. And what he does here is he says, look, you walk in peace with everyone. We don't have time to go back and look at Ephesians chapter 4. But you remember he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Um, he, he says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I tell you, in the relationships we have in the body of Christ, God will use those relationships to drive us to the end of ourselves. The people you're struggling with the most in this room are opportunities for you to pray for those people and their opportunity for you to die to your flesh and to serve those people. And what he does is he reminds them, he says, look, be at peace, be at peace, walk with peace. And then, I wish we had more time to unpack that. He says, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is interesting because it really could go one of two different ways. It would be true to say that holiness becomes a manifestation of those who will ultimately see the Lord. Now, hear me out. We don't do good things to earn merit before God. That would make us no different than any other world religion. But one of the things that holiness does is it manifests that we have a father who is leading us towards holiness. Holiness manifests where the gospel has taken root. One, one way to put this would be, if, and I would challenge you in love, to say if you're, if you're here and you're a professing Christian and you have, and be honest with yourself, try to be, if you have absolutely no desire for holiness, you need to do some homework and you need to check the foundations of your heart. Because holiness is going to be the DNA of a heart that used to be stone that's now been made flesh. In Jeremiah 31, the whole Ezekiel 36, it's the new covenant. So what happens? Where the Spirit of God has now come to live within, he's giving new impulses, he's giving new appetites, he's giving new cravings. And if somebody doesn't long for holiness or is not moving, even if it's a crawl towards holiness, there needs to be a step back. It's like... Uh, I tell you, if you ever want to get in trouble, you know, you call up one of those foundation experts 
and they come in and they'll check the foundations of your house, you know, give you a quote for 37000 to fix a crack in the, the, you know, the block. Just don't call them. Just be, just be content to have water in your basement. But anyway, <laughs> but they'll come in and what do they do? They'll tell you what's really going on. And sometimes when you find people that are professing Christians that could care less about the things of God, don't be deceived. It doesn't work like that. If you have no appetites and no longings for the things of God, it's not like you're just the one that didn't get that. It means that something is wrong, desperately wrong with the condition of your heart. But here he might be doing something different. He says, pursue peace and holiness and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He could be saying that it's through peaceful relationships and it's through holy living that the people around us see the reality of Christ in us. I'll give you an example of this. If he's going this direction, it would be the idea of Matthew 5, where he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what happens is a result of good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You can find passage after passage in the Bible that illustrates this principle. So it could be he's saying, look, you make sure you pave the way. You are trailblazing, so to speak, for those that are hindered, they're lame, they're weak, they're weary. Model for them, love them, care for them, and now in peacefulness, And in holiness, you are literally giving the light of the gospel to those who don't even know Christ. You're giving a testimony of faithfulness to the body of Christ. So we've got this idea of lift and make straight, strive for peace and holiness, and watch diligently. And in the last few moments that we have, and we may come back and look over this a little bit more next week, but today we're just going to try to cover the basis He's going to give three areas in which they are to watch. Look at them with me. The first one in verse 15, see to it that no one what? Fails to obtain the grace of God. The second one that they're to be watchful for is that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it, many may become defiled. And then the third one is what? That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Those are the three areas that they are to take great care over and watch diligently for. This first one, you know, when he says see to it, it means to look upon, observe, examine the state of affairs of something. This is a a command. He's not giving them a recommendation. He's saying, look, it is imperative that you watch and that you examine that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I tell you, I love this because this is a great example of healthy ecclesiology. If you are a member of this church, this is an imperative given to you, not just the elders, not just deacons, it's given to everybody to be concerned about the spiritual health of those around you. I love this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You know, when you look at the New Testament and the epistles, we're called to stand firm in God's grace. We're called not to receive God's grace in vain. 
I was reading different quotes through this section, and, and there's so many good ones um, about just the reality of the need to follow God's grace. Um, one individual said, if these Christians are to follow after holiness, they must rely upon God's grace. It cannot be pursued in their own energy. Possibly some of this church's membership had drawn back or fallen short of that grace. They began this life of faith only by God's saving grace, and only by grace can it be continued. The writer takes care, therefore, to issue a solemn warning. Make sure that you rely constantly on the promised grace. I wonder today, believer, are you receiving the grace of God not with a precious, submissive spirit? Are you taking for granted the grace of God? You know, isn't it interesting that, that we are to appropriate what we have in Christ by faith? And so often when we're walking apathetic or when we're walking after the flesh, we are not recognizing and we are not living out of the wonder and the miracle of God's precious grace. It's like live out of it. Cherish it. Walk in it. It could even be speaking here. You know, we think about the word and the grace of God and, and, and just daily confession and repentance. We think about walking in that grace and how we receive and hear from God and his word. But he could even be speaking to it from the angle of, you may have people in your midst that have never even received the grace of God. You see, we got to be careful because sometimes when we're on the trail and we've got people two miles back, you know, we're trying to make the uh, summit, but we got some that are struggling to just keep going. We got to make sure that, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's almost like there's this sense of like, look, don't take for granted where people are. Care for their souls. Nurse their wounds. Run after them. But, but don't just consider, I'll tell you, one of the most dangerous things that can happen is you get into a church setting where the world seeps into the church and people start living just like the world, but they just happen to be active in that church. And people start to get comfortable and think it's not that abnormal. And all of a sudden, people go, wait a minute, this is getting pretty comfy. We've got a good group of people that love listening to expositional preaching, but really aren't different from the world. Wait a minute. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You see what happens? I think, again, it takes one to know one. Have you ever been into that where you can relate? I know I can in my own life, in my past walk with Christ. And here he's just saying, look, don't be careful. Be, be aware. Be diligent. Like, be aware. You know, and, and then he goes on and he says, but watch diligently that no root of bitterness springs up. Now, this is fascinating. He seems to be referring to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, 
blesses himself in his heart. This is amazing. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Wow. I tell you, one of the, one of the greatest experiences of my life is, is pastoring in a church this long because of just the joys of the fellowship of the body of Christ. But one of the saddest experiences I've ever dealt with is over this 15 years, I have seen people apostatize in their faith. They profess faith. They'll even lead in some capacity. But now they want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ whatsoever. Those people will actually create a danger to the church. They could create a, a root of bitterness that could spring up. It could cause trouble. And by it, many become defiled. I think one of the things you see here is a picture of why would elders care about the doctrine, direction, and discipline in a church? I think this is, in a, in a strange way, this becomes like a passage of like, if we don't regard purity in the local church as a priority, what we've done is, is we've ceased to be a New Testament church. If we can make it something to where we put our stamp of approval on people who live in consistent, unrepentant sin, and somehow give them a sense that they are representing what the church and a Christian should be, we are literally causing peril for the people that are a part of this body. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look, understand this. This is, in, this is incredibly significant and urgent. And then he goes on and he uses another severe warning. He says what? He says it could cause defilement, and then he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, that no one is sexually immoral. I, I tell you, it could be today. Aren't you thankful that we advance in this Christian life only because of the faithfulness of God? And we only grow because of the power of the Holy Spirit who's moving along, us along this road but, but, but it could be that, that someone's here today and you are participating in sexually immoral sin. And I want to call you to repent of it. I want, I want to call you to understand the serious nature of it because it, it's dangerously close when people are in a place of sexual immorality and they are resistant to repent or confess of that sin they literally are putting themselves in the same place as the individual we just read about in Deuteronomy 29, 19, who literally says in their heart, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And we've got to see the seriousness of this. And here's what really is baffling. He says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. We know Esau he was much more temporary than looking at the blessings of the, you know, being the, uh, the recipient of 
his father's blessings. So we see that that is unhealthy and we see that that is a sinful trait. But you know what's fascinating? Is that extra biblical literature is very interesting because it speaks of the immoral way in which Esau lived. And so when the scripture seems to suggest that there are stories that are historical stories, it seems to suggest possibly, possibly is the underlined word there, that some of those accounts are actually true of the life of Esau, that he was an immoral man. He, it's fascinating because it mentions in the scripture in Genesis 30, 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of being the Hittite, to his wife, and Basement, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And look at the next verse. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Some have suggested that the way that he went after these foreign women who had foreign gods, that it was a picture of the immorality that held him captive. We don't know that for certain, but we find it interesting that he mentions that be aware of the immorality and the unholiness of Esau. I was reading Kent Hughes throughout this passage. He's a pastor, and he's a guy that really has a heart for application. And he mentioned some things that I thought you would be encouraged by in the sense of like, this is really good application. He mentions Calvin, who says of, of, of people that are godless, of people that are unholy. He says, those in whom the love of the world so holds sway and prevails that they forget heaven as men who are carried away by ambition, addicted to money and riches, given over to gluttony, and entangled with other kinds of pleasures, and give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns." I'll tell you something, guys, I want to encourage you to really be careful here, and I need to be careful here. Do you realize that you can be the man that Calvin describes here, where you literally are addicted to money and riches, you are entangled with all kinds of pleasures, and you give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in your life, and you can join a local church often, and you will be considered as a good man within the community, but a godless man in the eyes of God. You see, he uses a phrase here, that, that, and Hughes, Hughes goes on. He says, Esau was completely earthbound. All his thoughts were on what he could touch and taste. Instant gratification was his rule of thumb. He was void of spiritual values. He goes on, Esau was like a living beer commercial, bearded, steroid, macho, with two things on his mind, sexual pleasure and physical pleasure, food, drink, sports, and sleep. He cared about those things more than he did the things of God. And when 
the author of Hebrews here calling these precious Christians, he says, look, you gotta be careful. Be careful that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Be careful no root of bitterness springs up within your midst. Be careful that no one is immoral and unholy like Esau. And then he, he wraps this up and you see it at the end of the section. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I found two things helpful here. One was a, a quote by Al Mohler, where he says, Esau does not respond in such a way that communicates genuine repentance. He simply regrets that he has lost his birthright and his blessing as the firstborn. It's not repentance that Esau seeks with tears. It's only what he lost to Jacob. He goes on, true repentance requires a hatred of sin. Tears alone do not signal repentance. There are many people who are brokenhearted over their sin, but they do not repent. They do not agree with God about what their sin is. And then listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. Esau wanted to have this world and the next two. He wanted to have the pottage and the birthright. He wanted to be a fine gentleman among the Hittites and yet have the blessing. He wanted to have his wife of a fine, noble Philistine family and be thought a famous fellow among them and yet at the same time have the blessing that belonged to the separate people of God. So this morning, lift and make straight. Strive for peace and holiness. Watch diligently. Watch diligently. You know, it reminds you of what Hebrews 6 says, is there's a place where people get so hardened that they ultimately will never repent. This morning, as we go into a time of the Lord's Supper in just a second, I want you to think about something. And, and just some things that hit my heart from my heart to you. I, uh, I would challenge you. It, I think one thing we see here is that we need each other. We need accountability in the body of Christ. We need each other. I need you. And, and believe it or not, you need me. We need one another. And I tell you, I find more and more common in this world, people are literally moving further and further and further away from the church. They don't want any accountability. You know, when, when, when leaders are, are called to give an account for the people that they are to lead and when people are to submit to leaders, I believe with all my heart that it is a strong argument for local church membership. And I would challenge you today, and you may think I'm crazy, and I hope you know me well enough to know my heart. The last thing I'm concerned about is numbers in this body as the, as the goal of this. But I would challenge you, if you're in this church and you come weekly and you've never formally become a part of this group in a way of seeking accountability and membership, I want you to pray about it. I want you to pray about whether or not that's a biblical approach to being a part of this church. Because what we see in Hebrews is serious stuff, and it's said to us in the nature of a community. I want you to pray about that. Another thing here I want you to think about is, is who in this body of Christ can you encourage today, tomorrow, this week? Who around you is hurting? Who around you needs encouragement? 
All these things, dear friends and fellow brother, sister, are possible and are available to us because of Jesus Christ. And as we come to the Lord's table right now, I want you to consider, all right, let's go to the Lord and like, let's say, okay, God, this is what you call me to. This is what you call me to. You call me in the light of, of weariness, in the light of, of confusion, in the light of losing heart. You call me to, uh, to respond to the truth of what your word says about suffering, adversity, and hardship. You call me to be at peace with my brother and my sister in this body, and that would extend outside of the body of Christ because we are believers and those people are not. And we're, we're called to strive for holiness. So as we take time here just to consider, it could be that throughout this sermon, isn't it, aren't you thankful this morning that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Man, I, we have no hope apart from the kindness of God. We have no hope apart from the grace of Jesus. And then we see this watch diligently, and it's sobering, doesn't it? Don't, don't, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Don't, don't be a part of a root of bitterness springing up and be aware of that possibility in the sense of like loving care for the body. And then watch diligently that, that you don't get so self-deceived that you foster unrepentant sin in the background of your life where no one knows what's going on but you and God. Don't play that game. And today, if you're in that place, I've got good news for you, friend, is that it's the grace of Jesus Christ that can rescue you from the hidden corridors of your heart. It's the grace of Jesus that can free you from the slavery of that sin. And this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we are looking and we're reminded of the one who is our great high priest. We're reminded that apart from the new covenant, this is nothing more than trying to make ourselves look better. Apart from one who substituted himself for our sins, this is nothing but some type of ethical way of making ourselves trying to be more self-righteous. But we're here today because of the gospel of Jesus that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And we announce today as we come to the Lord's table that we have been saved as sinners by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's made it possible and he's given us a new way to walk in light of these blessings. So today, friend, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've entered into that, through baptism, not because baptism saves, but because you wanted to be publicly identified with the people of God. If that fits you today, then I, I challenge you to go to the Lord's table here in a second and get the drink and the cup. And, 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 and what we're going to see is, is that as we take of this, if you're not a believer here today, I want you to sit here and I want you to watch and I want you to think to yourself, what is it that they are doing? Because the Bible says that literally, this is a proclamation about the miracle of the cross of Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity to go to the table and get what you need, and then go back to your seats. But let's pray. Lord, I thank you for 
your word. And Lord, these are, these are heavy words we read this morning, but God, I pray that we would all see the wonder of the hope of the gospel. Lord, we praise you that in Christ Jesus, we have hope to live godly and holy. Oh Lord, I pray that we would understand the necessity and the need of, of the body of Christ. Lord, as we take of the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray you'd be lifted high. And Lord, I pray that we'd be filled with joy, filled with hope, that Lord, the new covenant is a better covenant. It's a covenant that enables us to live in obedience to these commands. And we praise you, God, for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.